If you have your Bibles, please open them to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's going to be the portion of text that we're going to look at this morning. And if I were to be able to edit the English translation and, uh, of the Scriptures, uh, the way they're laid out, I would include this really as the last part of chapter 11, because that's what we're seeing here. It's the wrap-up of the argument that the writer to the Hebrews is making that he began all the way back in chapter 11, verse 1. And this whole series has been called Christ Our Faith, and we have been looking at faith itself both defined and described. It's defined right at the beginning of chapter 11. I'll just read this to you so that I can remind you of it. It begins by saying, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Faith itself, it's the basis of assurance. And the conviction that it brings is the conviction of things that have yet to be fully realized. And the whole rest of chapter 11 is proof. The author takes the rest of chapter 11 and he proves it by talking about the, the ancient ones. We talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah, and then the patriarchs, Abraham, his wife Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and also his son Levi, who eventually would, through his line, bring Moses. And then last week, we focused in on this particular group of, of individuals, and they're the ones that really make up the time from the conquest in the Old Testament up until the prophets. And we began by looking at Gideon, you might remember him, and, and Barak, and, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and all the prophets. We talked about Rahab, the one who was alone able to, by God's grace, see the truth of God and rescue her family when Jericho was destroyed. And now the author wants to look back over all of that, and he wants to encourage those who are, who are right now in the process of, of living out the Christian life. And, and he begins with the word, therefore, and the first two verses of chapter 12 summarize everything from chapter 11, okay? So that's how it's structured. And um, as we read that together this morning, I just want you to listen carefully because it is the, the capstone of the entire argument. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is God's word. There are really two main points that I see in these two verses, and the first one is the believer's suffering, and the second is the Savior's joy the believer's suffering and the Savior's joy. We see that in verse 1, the believer's suffering when we read the race that is set before us and the Savior's joy, when in verse 2 we read the joy that was set before Him. You see, certain things were set before certain people. Certain things were put before them, in front of them, and that's the, the focus that the, the author has. And here, 
In chapter 12, 1 and 2, these two big ideas, our suffering, his joy, is a reminder that the Christian life is not meant to be something that is so easy that you essentially just sort of coast through it until you're glorified. In fact, the Christian life is here described as a race, and we'll come to see in a moment, it's the word that we get the word agony from in the English language. Uh, it's hard. Uh, there's a lot of suffering involved. And, and it's something that requires you to, to have a great degree of endurance. But, but before we really get into that, I want to make sure we understand the context more clearly because uh, some of you may have read this verse and maybe even have heard teachings about it in the past where this great cloud of witnesses is presented to you as being all the people who have already died and they're now in heaven, uh, and, or maybe like your parents or your grandparents, your ancestors, and they're all in the stadium, like, and they're all watching you run. And, and, you know, you're running the race and, and you're trying to, you know, get their attention. You're, you're hoping that they're clapping and they're cheering. You're, you're hoping that they're happy with you. You're hoping that, 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 uh, that you perform well in front of them. Well, I hate to tell you, but there's like absolutely nothing in the scriptures that would testify to that being what this scripture is saying. Uh, there's, there's nothing. In fact, uh, what we do know is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. So we know that when we leave this body, we are present with the Lord, but, but that is it. There, there's no indication of us looking at what's going on in the world. We're going to be far more obsessed with what's going on in glory. Uh, we will be with the Lord. We will be in His presence uh, in fact, eschatologically, that word means like in the end, when everything is all wrapped up. If, if you're wondering what the Bible teaches, it's that there will be a resurrection, that the Lord will return, uh, you will have a new body, and you'll be living on a new and perfect earth, there will be a new and perfect heavens, there will be a perfect heavenly city, and there will be a perfect presence of God with us here forever. And between now and then, there is no indication that anyone is watching you run this race. So what does it mean? Well, what it means instead, if you go back to the text and look at it, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that word witness is like a witness in a trial. It's like a witness who gives testimony to something. A witness who says, I saw it, and, and here's what I can, can tell you happened. And the question is, well, who are the witnesses? What are we talking about here? The, the witnesses are those who earlier in the chapter were described as the ones who by grace were carried through in their faith, even though many of them were failures, even though many of them had rather significant deficiencies, to say the least. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm really grateful that it's not them looking over the railing trying to encourage us because many of them wouldn't have much to add. Many of them wouldn't be people we would want to follow. I don't think Gideon is going to mentor you on courageous leadership or Barak on the importance of obeying quickly or Samson is going to lecture me on anger or Jephthah on wise decision-making or David to tell me to follow his example of being a good husband and father. I mean, these are not people that are presented to us as, as being preeminent moral examples. And, and one of the problems that often happens in the church today is that, I guess, preachers are trying to find some way to motivate people, and so they take biblical accounts, narratives, and they immediately moralize them. They completely lose sight of the context. They lose sight of how Christ fulfills that. They lose sight of the gospel, and instead it just becomes, go out there and be more like these people. And that's not what the author is intending here. 
So if we were to understand this the way that he wants us to understand it, it is to say that these individuals who have gone before, these witnesses testify to the fact that Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the election of the Father, brought to completion the faith they showed in just that very granular seed form. Just that very little bit of faith that they had manifest in these actions that they did when they just trusted God in this one moment that even though they may die as Samson did in mass murder-suicide, that they are regenerated. They've been given faith. They have acted in that faith, and they believed and they were saved. And I hope that's liberating for you today, that it'll liberate you from some of the guilt that goes along with the idea that you have to live up to some particular standard to earn God's favor. What you'll come to see this morning is that God authored your faith and finished it. He, he authored it. He created it. He was the first to go and demonstrate it. He was the leader of it, the champion, and he was the one who completed it, perfected it, brought it to an end. He, if anyone ran the race, he ran the race, and he ran it perfectly, and he is waiting for you at the finish line to crown you with all of the glory that was given to him for his perfect faithfulness. That as a believer, that is what awaits you. That's the perfection of the faith. And that's what is meant to encourage you this morning. He was there at the start when he experienced regeneration. When we experience regeneration, he is there at the start and he will be there at the end when we are glorified. Now, this is something that a lot of us uh, struggle to understand because we see the lingering sin in our own life. And I would remind you of a letter that Luther wrote to Melanchthon. It was August 1, 1521. And, and Luther and Melanchthon, they would work together in the Reformation. And, and, and Melanchthon was known for being just really burdened by, by his ongoing sin. In, in fact, he, he just really felt like he was always trying to be righteous enough in God's eyes. He was always working hard uh, to improve himself. And he'd be, he'd be very, very hard on himself whenever he failed, whenever he stumbled. And... Um, and, and Luther, as you know, if you've read anything about Luther, he didn't quite struggle with that the same way. <laughs> he, he really had a, had, a, had a wonderful, majestic view of the, the grace of God and salvation and the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to him. And, and so he wrote Melanchthon this, and it, it's rather a long letter. I'm just going to read one section of it, but I thought it was wonderful. He said, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary but true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner, and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger, and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here. For this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter in 2 Peter 3.13, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from Him. 
even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times a day, do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. Let me make sure you understand what Luther's saying there. He's not downplaying sin. In fact, if anything, he is trying to help us understand how serious sin really is, and therefore how great the Savior really is. He says, don't preach a weak mercy. Preach just how sinful sin is, and then preach a mercy that is so great that it covers it, that if one is in Christ, that there is nothing they have done, do, or will do that can separate them from the love of God. That they can say, as the author to the Romans did, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a great cloud of witnesses testifying to this. And therefore, in response to that reality, we must know what the Scripture says let us also lay aside. And in the original language, that's actually a set up. The grammar is such that you could translate that, having laid aside. It's already something you've done. It's looking back in the past. At your conversion, uh, you, you gave up these things. These were, these were laid aside. They were set apart from you. Every weight, it's only used here in the New Testament. It just means bulk, any heaviness. And all the sin which... I prefer a translation that easily entangles us. He says, you've been converted, you've been changed. You're no longer that old person. That old person is gone, and therefore, lay aside those things. It's already passed. Lay aside the sin. Lay aside the things that entangle you. The question may come, well, how is it that I'm supposed to lay aside these things? How, how do I understand sin? How do I understand what I've, what I've been rescued from? And the answer to that question is very simple. It is that all of the sin that indicted you, all of the sin that separated you from God has been forgiven. The price has been fully paid. And in exchange, you're not just brought up to even, you're not just brought up to neutral. In exchange, not only is that sin fully paid for, but the righteousness of Christ is fully given to you. And what that does is it opens up the door to pursue a life of righteousness without guilt. It opens up the door to pursue a life of holiness without guilt. Because the person who is genuinely born again should desire to be holy. You should desire righteousness. It doesn't make any sense for you to say, well, I'm, I'm born again, I'm saved. Christ paid for my sin, he gave me his righteousness, and now I'm just going to live and sin however much I want because, hey, I'm secured. That, that's not how assurance and salvation plays out. But what it also does is it rescues you from legalism. And legalism is the guilt that so many Christians carry because they're not able to live up to the standard of the law. Now, now you'll know if you've been at our church for any period of time that there are a few books that I constantly reference. And, and one of them is called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. If you, if you have uh, never read this book, I recommend that you do it. I was going to say I require it, but I can't really do that. But if I could, I would. Because it's like an antidote to so many things. When people come to talk to me about a problem they're having, I always think, ah, oh, you should read the whole Christ. Like, oh, pastor, I'm struggling with this. Read the whole Christ. 
oh, I got this thing going on. Read the whole Christ. I think now I should start like, handing it out when people come to see me. Start here, you know, the Bible first, but then this. Because what it did is it, it really helped me anyway. It opened up my eyes to so many of the, the things that I had carried with me as a Christian for a really long time. And a lot of correction came into my life. And there is a section in here, beginning in page 82, about the root of so many of our problems, about whether it's legalism, trying to, 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 to live up to a certain standard that we can never live up to, or another big word, antinomianism, which is to basically live like there's no law at all. Just, just, just live any way you want. And, and speaking of legalism, the author says this, and, and I love it. It's a beautiful definition, and it sort of unlocks the whole problem. He says this. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. Separates the law of God from the person of God. What it means is that you see law apart from love. You see law apart from the kindness of God, the wisdom of God. And he says this was the big problem with Eve. This is what happened is she was able, because of Satan's cunning, to separate the love of God from his instructions to her. So he goes on to say, Eve sees God's law, but she has lost sight of the true God himself, thus abstracting his law from his loving and generous person. She was deceived into hearing law only as negative deprivation and not as the wisdom of a heavenly father. So I say all this this morning, kind of an introduction, because Otherwise, I would be concerned that as we went through this passage, you might be thinking that the outcome of the passage and the application is, now go out there and run harder and try better and do more and obey the law, and if you do, God will be happy with you, and all those people who are watching will celebrate when you finally cross the finish line, and that's not what the author's saying. So with a proper understanding of this, let's go back now and look at what he says. The first point, this is the believer's suffering. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now let us run. Now, the word race is, comes from a word that we eventually get the word agony from. Agon is the, the Greek word. And the way that the author is describing this is he is saying that you are existing under a burden of a suffering, something difficult, an agony, as it were. And he uses the metaphor for racing. He's just saying, run the race. Run the race. The race is the suffering. He says, run it. He could just as easily have said something else, a different, a different metaphor. You know, he could have said, sail it, or climb it, or drive it. So I don't want you to get hung up on the idea of race, this idea of running a race. Because if you do, you can sometimes confuse things by mixing a metaphor. You ever known somebody who mixes metaphors? Um, I, I can't say anything because he's not here. Um, but, but, well, since he's not here, John Stead, he's traveling, he's in Florida. I mean, it's, it is just almost every day, like there's a new one. And we're always amazed in our meetings um, about his ability to, to mix a metaphor. Uh, in fact, I think Dave's keeping a list of them and we'll publish that one day. Um, but this can happen, I think, uh, when, when, especially when preachers, they, they get this race motif in their head, and they start doing like a word study for everywhere the place race shows up, and all of a sudden they're integrating all kinds of things into this passage that, that aren't meant to be there. So, so let's focus just on what the author is saying. The focus is on the race. The focus is on the struggle. The focus is on the suffering. And he says, suffer with endurance. 
That's why this is about the believer's suffering. And here's the reality. Every one of you is suffering in some way or another. Every one of you is carrying a weight. Every one of you has a certain load. There's not a single person who has been overlooked in this area. And every one of you is a little bit different. But every one of you is carrying that weight. And every one of you, as you live in this world, as a sinner, though you are redeemed, you are still in this fallen flesh, and you will fight, and you will battle, and you will suffer, and there will be an agony from the moment you are converted all the way until you're glorified. There will always be that struggle. And the writer of the Hebrews is reminding those believers who are Jewish believers, like living in Rome, who are suffering persecution, who are being persuaded by some to go back to the old religion, who felt like this was too much and it was too heavy a cost. He was saying to them, that is your race, now endure it. Stand up under it. Bear under it. You can do it. Not for your own glory, but he's saying you can do it. You can get to the end. The word endure there, you'll see it in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3. The word endure means to, means to stay under something. To stay under it. And I know that sometimes what we want to do is just have it lifted off. The idea is I don't want to be under this burden anymore. It's too heavy. Just find a way to take it off. And while the gospel is not a burden, your sin is. And so the author is telling us, you need to cast off everything that is going to further influence that burden and endure in the suffering until the day of your glorification. That is to be expected. So, the believer's suffering. But how is this answered? Look at verse 2. We are to bear up under this suffering that has been set before us as our lot by doing something. Verse 2. And this is the Savior's joy. By looking to Jesus, the founder, you could could translate this the captain, the pioneer, and the perfecter, the one who brings to completion the faith. The translation that I'm using says our faith. It's really just the faith. He was the beginning and the end of the faith. He created it. He's the pioneer of it. He gives it to you as a gift. You exercise it in order to be saved, and then you grow in the habit of showing that faith. And from the very beginning to the very end, He is the one who created it. He is the one who empowers it. He is the one who completes it. He is the one who is doing that work in us and through us. And the idea here is that you're taking your eyes off of yourself and you are looking to Him, the one who has completed it the one who's already crossed the line. And as you look to him, the one who was the beginning and the end of the faith, you will see that he is the one who, for, or you could say instead of, which is probably the better translation, who instead of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, he is the one who, because of something greater than the suffering, was able to persevere. You see, it was for the joy. It was for the joy that he did this. The cross was in front of him, but beyond the cross was the joy. And so when Christ suffered, he suffered with joy in mind. 
It was in the, instead of just focusing in on, on having his joy now, there was a joy that was to come. And that joy that was to come, that joy that was set before him on the other side of the cross is what caused him to endure it. Same word for endurance, to bear up under it. And it's very interesting the way it's described here as despising the shame. Now, you might be thinking that that word despise is the same as the word despise that shows up maybe in Romans, like chapter 14. Remember how how Paul says to the Roman believers that some of you eat meat, some of you don't, some of you drink, some of you don't, some of you have festivals that you celebrate, some of you don't. And he said, those of you who do it or or that don't do it are not allowed to judge the people who do, and those of you who, who do it are not allowed to despise the people who don't. Despise them. That word for despise means to, to basically just be completely turned off by them, like to just, just wish they weren't there, uh, to, to be revolted by them. That's not what's being described here. This word despise is different. It's made up of two words that mean to, to think low of something, to think low of it. Jesus was able to look at the cross, and by the way, they use the word Jesus to emphasize his humanity. Jesus was able to look at the cross And he could basically think so less of the shame that came with that that he could easily get past it. It wasn't going to get in his way. If any of you watch sports, you'll know that uh, it's been kind of a rough time for Tom Brady lately. And um, one of the things that I saw in this headline was that he is now the most sacked quarterback in history. Among all of his titles, he now also gets to have that one, the most sacked quarterback, the most tackled quarterback in history. And the reality is that if somebody on the defensive line or a linebacker wants to sack him, he is going to have to despise the people in front of him trying to block and protect him. It's the same idea. You think down of them. You you brush it to the side. You do some swim move to get past it. Christ here is seen as going to that cross, being willing in the face of that shame to maneuver right past it, to put it to the side and not let it stop him. And the author then to the Hebrews is telling these Christians to, to encourage them to say that your founder, the one who perfected the faith, went to the cross because there was a joy on the other side of it. He was able to endure it. He was able to put aside all of the shame. And now as a result, he is victoriously reigning and ruling in glory on the very throne of his father. That everything that he had promised is now true. And you need to see him that way, glorified, exalted, highly lifted up. Not in his humiliation, not in his shame, but in his victory. And hopefully, it's that picture of him in his victory that allows you as a Christian to live the challenging Christian life, knowing that he's pulling you through and across the line. And that one day he's going to reward you with all the rewards that he earned. Now this is what should motivate us then to to live that life of holiness. Not, Not to earn anything, not to gain anything from him, but merely to, out of gratitude, live this life of obedience that brings the sort of joy that he promises it'll bring. That is how you turn your suffering into joy. You turn your suffering into joy by seeing that everything that you are suffering has ultimately been fulfilled in Christ. And he is the one now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
our agony, our suffering, His joy. Now, I want you to notice something. We don't take up the cross of damnation. Notice what he says back here in the text again. He says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I know it's sometimes popular for Christians to talk about bearing their cross. They say, this is just a cross that I bear. The cross was only born once by Christ, and it was once and for all. When he says, take up your cross daily, he doesn't mean take up a cross that is going to in any way forgive sin. The cross you take up is not the cross that forgives sin. The cross you take up is the cross that indicates that you understand that you, the life you live right now is a life that has already been given over to God. It's not the life you're trying to hold on to. It's not the life you're trying to save. It's not the life that you're trying to make the best of now. Carrying the cross just says, I'm as good as dead. This life is as good as over for me. Whatever comes will come. I'm, I'm content to live this life and to receive whatever the Lord brings whether in my mind, good or bad, because this cross is an indication that I have already made that decision. The cross that brings salvation is the cross that was carried by him. He was nailed to it. And then when he was taken down from it and he rose again, that forgiveness was absolutely made complete. So what constrains us then to obedience? Well, let me give you this quote from a hymn that I've mentioned many times before. This was written by William Cooper. Uh, he is the one who would write hymns with John Newton, um, really as a therapy. William Cooper had severe depression and was actually suicidal, and one of the ways that uh, Newton would minister to him as his pastor in Olney was they would get together once a week and they would share the hymns they'd written. That's how you got the Olney hymnal. That's how you got hymns like Amazing Grace or like Newton's hymn we sung earlier, The Lord Will Provide. Uh, but this is one that, um, that Cooper wrote. And, and what it does for me is it just helps summarize the freedom I now have to, to lovingly, joyfully obey Christ and seek holiness without it being my attempt to fulfill the law. And he says this, No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright, and what she has she misapplies for want of clearer light. So whatever strength we do have, we would tend to misapply that strength. Even if we did have a, a physical amount of strength or an emotional or a mental or a spiritual amount of strength, we wouldn't use it for the right things. And he, he confesses this. He says, how long, how long beneath the law I lay? How long, how long I struggled to obey? How long, how long in bondage and distress? How long, how long I toiled without success? Can you relate to that? Can you relate to trying hard to obey God's law, to toiling and laboring and, and trying to do your best and, and, and exist under this burden of some kind of self-righteousness, never fully succeeding. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to fall into that trap. And what can happen is when you fail, you seem to think that God is so upset with you and angry at you that it's best for you just to avoid Him for a while. That's why I think some people, when they have stumbled into sin, they don't want to be at church. They think, I don't want to be there with all those perfect righteous people. Well, here's some good news. There are no perfect righteous people here. They all come in here with the same burden. They all come in here with the same failures. Or worse yet, I know people who will not come to the Lord's table because they've been told somehow that they need to go through this internal examination to see if they're worthy of coming to the table. 
What we say at this church is that if you're struggling with that sin and you realize that your weakness and your failure, you ought to be the first person to run to the Lord's table because it is a demonstration of the finished work of Christ for you. I mean, this is the best place to be if you are a sinner. This is where you want to be reminded that if you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is also a good opportunity for me to remind you if you're not a Christian. I mean, if you're here today and and, and you're just visiting or somebody invited you to church, we are so glad you're here. But we want to be really clear before you go on what the gospel is and what it's not. The gospel is not a checklist for you to improve yourself to the point of being accepted by God, where you clean up your life enough to sort of fit within what he thinks you should be like. No, it is, a, it is a message. It is a declaration. It's a promise. It's a call to receive from him what he offers, which is perfect righteousness through the finished work of Christ. Because Christ already came and he fulfilled the law. He lived it out perfectly. He did everything that you and I couldn't do. And then he offers it to you to be received by faith. And then when you receive it, All of his righteousness is imputed to you. All of your sin is paid for. That is settled. It's done. It means that if you die at that moment, you'll stand before the Lord and he won't say, well, what have you done for me? He'll say, what has Christ done? Why does the author over here at the beginning of verse 2 say, set your eyes on Jesus, look to Jesus? Because if you look to him, you're not looking to yourself. And if you look to him, you see your champion. You see the one who has completed it. You see the one who has fulfilled everything. And in him is the righteousness. And, and we believe that if the Holy Spirit gives you new life so that you can understand and believe that, then you will follow him in repentance and obedience. You might say, well, how come? You might say, you might say this. I've been at this church for a long time, and I've never once seen an altar call. I mean, I've never once heard you tell people to come forward and, and, and accept Jesus into their heart. Uh, let me tell you why. Uh, because that isn't the gospel. The gospel is not about you making a decision and and coming forward and praying a prayer. I'm not going to lead you through a prayer. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to sign a card. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm not saying it's impossible to be born again through a process like that because if it's genuine in your heart, the Lord will save you. But the thing is this, if, if if you do that, you confuse people, I think. You confuse them into thinking, well, I've done this thing. I walked down the aisle, I signed that card, I prayed that prayer, that's when I got saved. And I've seen people themselves and I've seen others who, who, who want to somehow defend this person and, and convince themselves that they're really a Christian by saying, well, look what they did way back then when they did this thing or they, they went through that process. I would like to, to not confuse anyone. Every week we want to preach the gospel at this church. We preach the gospel to Christians and non-Christians. To Christians, I preach it to you to remind you of what Christ has done for you so that you won't be tempted to go back to earning his favor through legalistic good works. And I also remind you what he's done for you so you won't live a life of of no repentance and just sinning all the time and and just believing, oh, well, I can do whatever I want because Christ has saved me. But to the unbeliever, we proclaim it every week to let you know what Christ has done and that his sacrifice is sufficient. And that all you need to do, he says, is believe. And you can't unless he gives you that new heart to believe. And so if you sense, if you just know in your heart that you believe that, and that you are willing to to forsake every other religion that you've created, and even atheism is a religion, it's just the religion of no God at all, it's the religion of yourself. If you're willing to discard all of that and say, I put my full trust in Christ, that is when that conversion occurs. 
And you are now, therefore, no longer a slave to sin, but now a slave to Christ and His righteousness. That is what it means to be saved. And that is why we make that our emphasis here at this church and not some decision that you make externally. Now, let me just wrap this up by giving you just some encouragements this morning. Okay, number one, when we look at this passage of Scripture, let's be careful not to mix metaphors because the running in one letter is not identical to the running in other letters. Focus in on just what the author is saying here. He's talking about this suffering, and he's saying you need to run this race. It's all about the struggle or the fight. It's not about the running part. Secondly, and very practically, I'd like you to be careful about asking other Christians how they're doing in their walk or in their race. Because what you can do, whether you realize it or not, is that you can train people to basically look to themselves instead of to Christ. If you ask them, how are you doing in your walk? They're tempted to to sort of go back into that previous week and ask themselves, well, how well did I do? I mean, I mean, have I been living up to my standard? Have I been doing what, what God asked me to do? And, oh, man, I sinned here and here and here and here. And, oh, I'm not doing very well at all. Oh, really bad. I'm not doing very well at all. Or they might say, I look back on the week and go, wow, you know, I pretty much nailed it. Like, I, mean, I don't mean to brag, but, like, wow. Like, it was like a good week. I did everything I said I would do. I read my Bible every day. I prayed every day. I even handed out a track to that waitress, even the mean one that I don't like. I'm doing pretty well. What's that going to create? It's going to create, on the, on the one hand, discouragement and despondency. If, if you look back on your life and say, man, you know, I, I just I continually sin. Or a pride and an arrogance if you think you're doing well. In both cases, you're looking to yourself instead of doing what you're supposed to do, which is to look to Christ. If you want to ask somebody how they're doing, the answer should be, by God's grace, I'm enduring as I look to Christ, who is the author and finisher of my faith. That's how you answer that person. And that's the only way that you're going to remain underneath that burden and retain your joy. There was this um, poem that was written years ago, and you see it a lot on like coffee mugs and like Christian clutter that you buy in Christian stores today that used to be bookstores. And, and, it's, and it's this little poem called Footprints. Have you, have you ever seen this? Okay, so there's always like some cheesy poster and there's like some footprints and there's this, there's this poem that talks about, you know, God and this person walking on the beach together and, and then there's this part where there's only one set of footprints and they're like, oh, why'd you leave me? And then they realize, oh, it's not that you left me, it's that you were carrying me. You know, you can tell what I think about this poem just by how I'm talking about it. So there's this, there's this guy, there's this Christian comedian who's super funny. And, and so he, he, he sort of did his own version of that poem and like one of those posters. And then at the bottom, he adds his part where he says this. And then I woke up and thought to myself, what a silly dream. There has only ever been one set of footprints because God has carried my story behind the entire way. And if he ever put me down, like even for a minute, I'd probably flop over and drown in the shallow surf or choke to death trying to eat sand or something like a complete helpless fool. (laughs) It's not this matter that that you do your part and he does his part and like together we... No! There there is only one person who is the champion, the one who carries you through from beginning until end. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Also this, looking to Jesus means seeing him on the other side of that finish line, waiting to share his reward for running a perfect race that he ran. It's all done for you already. And then finally, the part we play is that by his grace, by his grace alone, We cultivate a habit of faith 
And this is what it looks like when you see the, the love of God behind the law of God, the moral law or the third use of the law, as Calvin put it. It summarizes for Christians what is the will of God and how to please Him. It is not a way to earn His favor or to obtain any merit for your salvation. The first use of the law is a mirror. It, it reveals to you the fact that you can't live up to the standard that was given. The second use of the law is, is to, to bring some degree of, of moderation to the free expression of sin in the world. But then this third use, it is the moral use of the law, as it were, to, to remind you that there is an expectation that God has for your growth and obedience and holiness, but it's not there to, to limit you and hurt you. It is there because He is of infinite wisdom and love, and by obeying Him, it is what's best for you. That is how the believer can endure in joy. The believer's suffering, the Savior's joy, and that's what it will be until, by God's grace, we enter into His rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this truth this morning and for this text. It's been a rather long journey through chapter 11 and now at this last part, but Father, I pray that it has been profitable for us, that it has recalibrated our thinking on some of the issues that are raised here. I pray that we would, from this point forward, have a clearer understanding of the gospel, of the finished work, of the one who has gone before us and has completed the race perfectly. Oh Lord, I pray that uh, for those who are Christians here today, that they would be built up and encouraged by these words that they would throw off the, the sins that entangle them. But not to earn your favor, but instead to just more fully realize the joy of obeying you and all the good that comes from that. And Lord, that for those who are maybe living a, a life with very little concern for what you expect of them, may this have been a reminder that you do have expectations. And that, as we'll see in the coming weeks, you will discipline your children if they disobey because you love them as any good father would. And I want to pray especially for anyone here who's uh, yet to put their faith in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And not because they feel adequate to live up to a moral, moral code, uh, but that they really sense because you've given them this sense, this awareness, this, this new belief that this gospel, this offer of salvation because of the work of Christ is made available to them and that you've given them the faith to believe and that they too would be like Luther and that they would understand maybe for the first time what it means that by faith the ones who are justified will live. Do this work for your own glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.